Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and a very warm welcome to Season 3, Episode 9 of Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. Now in this ninth episode of Series 3, we are revisiting ESG, that's Environmental, Social and Corporate Governance. Now today we're going to have a particular focus on the G, the governance, and particularly why that is essential given the ramifications for financial services firms coming out of the recent COP26. Now I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Lindsay Rogerson, who attended COP26 in Glasgow, and Henry Engler, who took the lead on our special report on ESG. Hi, Sana. Hi, Henry. Hi there. Thank you both for joining me. I think this is going to be a fascinating one. Now, For the last couple of weeks, just about every headline you have read has been about COP26 and the agreements reached or indeed not reached. Those agreements and the governance element of ESG are inextricably linked. Without robust and really emphasising robust corporate governance, financial services firms, among others, will simply not be able to deliver on the environmental and social challenges. Now, probably stating the obvious, but climate risk is unlike other financial risks. Its uniqueness and complexity and the long-term nature of the risks makes quantifying the threat one of the biggest hurdles regulators must overcome in developing the new rules and regulations. And financial services firms and their compliance officers need to engage and continue to engage to ensure that good regulations are developed. Now, bad regulations do no one any favours. Badly designed requirements won't achieve the required aims and are incredibly expensive because all they need to do is be changed. Now, we have an awful lot to cover. So, Lindsay, COP26 highlights impact on financial services firms, standards agreements. Um, Yes. So the two things, uh, the two big takeaways for financial services firms um, from COP26 are carbon markets and standards. Now, we're going to focus predominantly on standards for the rest of this podcast, but I I don't want to skip over the significant development that is carbon markets and um, the uh, reaching an agreement on Article 6 from the Paris Accord. Now, I I won't geek out on the minutiae of, of what that all means, but basically it forms a framework which will allow um, countries to uh, trade their carbon emissions. So uh, predominantly countries in the global south who you know have a lot of uh, sunshine, do not pollute that much, will be able to use those, um, it, it will be able to monetize those. That's the idea. And, um, and so from that, we get um, a huge amount of excitement from financial services industry about the prospect of scaling back up carbon uh, uh, carbon markets and carbon derivatives. Now, there is potentially a huge amount of reputational risk around this, and everyone agrees that they can't, um, sorry, reputational risk, because in the past, carbon markets have led to the displacement of indigenous people, um, uh, various other things that and actually crucially they just haven't worked if you if you look at where we are with carbon levels versus where you know we should be if these things have been working for 30 years so how do you uh sort that out so um so there is uh the industry is keen on voluntary carbon markets um there is a mark carney started initiative it's now uh uh 
been taken up by Bill Winters of Standard Chartered. There's work going on there. They are That's the task force for scaling up voluntary carbon markets. There's also an integrity council attached to that, which is supposed to fix this problem of the bad reputation they've had and what you do with all the past. So that's on the voluntary side. The other thing to watch, and I know we'll come back to this next, is regulated carbon markets. On Friday last week, the uh, European Securities and Markets Authority put out a paper, which a preliminary report, which it had been asked to do by the Commission, uh, looking at what levers it might have to regulate carbon markets. Um, and so they fall under MIFID, uh, the Market Abuse Regulation, and EMIR. So that's something to watch for the, the next year. So that is my very quick canter through carbon markets for you. So if I turn now to standards and what has been hailed as the pivotal moment uh, for financial services. Um, in the first week of COP26, the um, International Financial Reporting Board, the uh, Standards Board, launched the International Sustainable Standards Board. Um, and this is handily going to subsume to existing kind of standards bodies in this space. So it will take in the Climate Disclosure Standards Board um, and it will also take in the Value Reporting Financial Foundation, which is, um, is also um, the SASB standards. So, so it's not we're getting more, it's actually they're taking what is already out there, bringing it together. And crucially, these are going to be global sustainable reporting standards. So in the way that um, everyone is familiar with the financial reporting standards, that's where we're going with these. Um, and they didn't just uh, announce the board, they produced two um, prototype standards. So the they are um, a climate standard and a sort of what they've called a general standard, which is designed to be a holding space until they uh, expand out into all the other kind of ESG sustainability uh, uh, niche, not niches, that's not the right word, but you know what I mean. That, that's what, so there's a holding standard, general holding standard, and there's a climate one. The climate one, again, talking about not rewriting the rules, it draws very heavily on the TCFD reporting framework, which a lot of people are now already reporting to. It's a legal requirement in New Zealand. And it, where it's you know it is about to be a legal requirement in the UK, and you know it feeds into some of what the EU is doing as well. So they're so they're very care carefully trying to, as I said, not start from scratch, but take what is usefully out there, but bring it together in cohe cohesion. Now, why will this standard? Why will the um, ISSB standard be any different from previous standards, other standards? Because and this is this is critical. Um, IOSCO, so the International Organization of Securities Commissioners, has said that it will consider endorsing them, and it's going to set up a working group to um, to do that. And why that matters is because twenty years ago, IOSCO did a very similar thing with the financial reporting standards, and that is basically credited to be as to why we have them where we are where we are with with that today. Um, and also the International Association of Insurance Supervisors, so the insurance version of IOSCO, it has welcomed the formation of ISBI. Um, and it's told me it's work, it's following its work very closely, and it will consider endorsing the standards once they're finalized. And those first two standards are expected to be finalized in the tail end of 2022. So um 
that is why these are important because they are going to be these global uh global regulatory bodies are going to basically push them out and um you know they will be adopted um just one final thing before I let everyone else have a have a say these are these are going to be so baseline standards so you'll hear that word a lot now these are baseline standards so um and the UK and the EU have already said that they will go further and we can come on to whether that's gold plating or whatever in our in our uh, as we go through but i just thought again it was um important to just mention that these are baseline standards thank you and and do you know what the good news out of all of that is we might actually have some standards and some reporting standards that might actually help turn the dial on climate risk that would make a very nice change so, Henry, I, I sort of laboured the point in my introduction about governance. Given we have now got what look like coherent international standards for so many data points, where are we on the governance? What kind of governance approach should firms begin to think about on this? Well, um, if they already haven't thought about it, they better hurry up because um, this is certainly a, a huge development. Um, Susanna, we've we've had um, several Wall Street firms react to the news on the on the ISB um, development, and they were all very positive about it because, you know, as you know, there was a lot of skepticism, shall we say that um, international organizations could reach uh, an agreement on common standards quickly. Um, but now that that appears to be within grasp. So for any financial institution, and I would say certainly the largest financial institutions probably have you know governance processes in place. They have uh, special ESG groups and committees working on um, preparing them um, for these new rules and regulations. Um, but, but certainly, um, if there are institutions that are waiting for all the fine print to emerge, shall we say, I think that that's a mistake. And I think that you will find many, um, many people, experts in the field, certainly consultancies, arguing um, that financial firms need to have a framework in place, have someone at the very top of the organization leading the ESG effort, uh, providing the accountability, the leadership, the plan, so forth, and also have, at the same time, um, a look across the organization and decide who does what, right? Um, there's certainly a role for compliance here, of course, um, even though, you know, traditionally we we think about compliance responding to rules and regulations after they've come into, into effect, but, but you, you need to have compliance at the table. Um, you need to have compliance work with risk management because there's certainly a risk element to this, as you stated, climate risk, difficult to measure, difficult to quantify. Uh, you need to have the legal function involved as well. So I think you know, all, at least at a minimum, those three functions within, you know, financial services firm have to be aligned, have to be 
coordinating what they're going to do, who's going to do what, and to avoid duplication of effort. Um, but it needs to come down from the top of the organization. If it's the CEO or someone certainly on the executive committee and on the boards of these institutions, you need to have that framework in place. It's just, there's no way around it because if you wait and delay, you're going to you know, be behind the curve. You're going to put yourself at perhaps reputational risk and operational risk and, and, and you just, there's, you know, there's no time to waste on this issue, Susanna. Sounds to me, I mean, that sounds incredibly sensible. It sounds to me like firms are going to have to breathe deeply and devote potentially significant resources to this. I mean, yes. And, and that, I, I may be putting words into your mouth here, but you can't necessarily assume, say, that the compliance function has those resources sitting around suitably skilled and spare to just do this. I mean, are, are we seeing firms gear up on the resources and can, where do they find them? Um, if, I, if I may, just, um, just there's a very current, very recent report now in the last couple of days from the Financial Services Skills Commission in the UK. And it said that actually 70% um, of its members uh, who are the large financial services firms um, have have are have well are busy upskilling as a priority in the ESG space because they don't they can't hire in they can't buy in the skills because those skills don't exist and I know uh, certainly last week a couple of things I was was attending this was this was a real issue the the lack of uh, people out there with es with the required ESG skills and that was ESG skills like on the investment side you know so that wasn't even just focusing on compliance these these the people with these skill sets are at a premium and there's not enough of them and so to Henry's point the longer you leave it you're going to be at the back of the line getting these people you know um and let or it's going to cost you more um and so there you know there, there's there's that and I just want to just quickly throw into the mix i was told um by an investment uh, an investment bank i won't say which one recently that is busy working through its um uh sfdr which is the uh, sustainable financial disclosure regulation i got it remembered it this time um so it's article 8 disclosures under that they were saying that um for they, there was 240 individual data points on those templates that had to fill in. And when they reached out to their the, the, the their investee companies, which they have to do, that is 100,000 investee companies. And so it was millions of data points. So the other side of the ESG hiring spree is on the data scientists. And, you know, so that's the other thing. You also need the data scientists and that obviously spills over into compliance as well you need people that can actually understand data sets and so um i just leave it leave you with that thought henry well i'll just give you an example um here we're talking about compliance and data scientists and deluge of data that needs to be managed and understood um there's also a need to interact with your investors, right? Your shareholders. For example, um, JP Morgan, which is now classified as the most systemic bank in the world from what I saw, um, the FSB came out today. Um, they recently hired 
a head of ESG investor relations just to deal with this issue that the existing team that JP Morgan has on the investor relations side is just they they they're not well enough equipped to handle all of the questions all of the issues that are emerging on ESG and i spoke to the gentleman you know just recently and it just to give you an example he speaks to shareholders on a daily basis he is deluged with questions about what the bank is doing on climate, what the bank is doing in terms of social commitments, working with poor communities, what the bank is doing to manage its transition to net zero, how is it helping its clients manage the transition to net zero, and how it's going to deal with regulators um, in the United States, for example, when once the Federal Reserve and and others uh, unveil their new rules and regulations. So it's 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 on all fronts that where there needs to be additional expertise, skills, time, commitment, and yes, I mean on on the, on the question of you know whether there's enough people who have these skills, it's 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 really questionable, and and you know it's not that easy a transition where you say all right, your existing compliance officer can just pick this up on the side. I, I don't. I don't think it works that way. I think it's very difficult. Yeah, I mean, we already know that compliance functions are stretched because they've had to deal with the pandemic, just like everybody else, digital transformation, technology. And now this one's coming into the mix. It does sound like resources, specialist investment in resources is needed big time. Just picking up on the rule change point or the introduction of the rules, I mean, the standards that were promulgated at COP26, is there another level of granular detail needed before they go into rule books or are the standards there and they'll just drop straight in and off we go? Um, Well, you can look at the prototype standards. They're available to look at and I'll put a link to them in the show notes. And certainly um, they seem like you could just pick them up and go with them if they're if they're agreed and there has been an awful lot of work to get to this point and a lot of people have um you know fed into it and, you know and as i said they the climate one certainly has borrowed heavily from the t- the work that has gone on on TCFD so um it's yeah it's certainly the intention that there would not be there would not be years worth years years worth worth of more work to do on these and from you will actually have standards from um next year from 2022 from this time next year and and at the same time obviously the there are two other things in the european space um because as i said the eu and the uk have both said that they will go further the uk is is currently working on its its standards they were uh, it, it, um it's it's working on its regime, its sustainable uh, reporting um, regime, the same sustainable disclosing regime as opposed to the SFDR. Um, but the EU is also in the midst of trans trans transferring what is currently the non financial reporting directive um, into the corporate sustainability reporting directive, which is supposed to have more teeth and its um, its own. Um, uh, so EFRAG, uh, its own reporting uh, group. 
it's currently working on its standards. So, you know, so it said that, you know, they, they will borrow from or not borrow from, but they will refer to the global standards, but they're not going to be, you know, they, they could go further. And so that's a live piece of work, which you can go on mm. right now. Okay, I'm going to coin a new phrase, green plating. If we, if we go over and above, the whole, well, the whole point, a very big point with all of this is the comparability, the interoperability of the information and the standards. If we have gold plating or green plating or whatever kind of, oh, we're going to go above and beyond, to what extent is that likely to actually dilute the usefulness of what people are going to have to spend a lot of money on building systems to report? Your guess at this stage, Susanna, is as good as mine is. That's probably that's probably the least helpful thing I could say. But um, it was, um, yeah, it was it was interesting. You know, we, there was the big fanfare. The standards were launched, and then very quickly, it was talk of that being a baseline and jurisdictions choosing to go further. Um, and as I said, so far we've had the UK and the EU say that they will they will do that. What that actually will look like, we don't know yet. We don't know what that will actually look like. What will happen between the um, all of those templates that um, SFDR has already has produced? What that will mean, in, you know, once we get uh, the the you know obviously the templates that go along with the global standards. It, you know, you would have to hope that some over some time there would be some kind of mapping at the very least but if not you know uh fine tuning so that exactly as you said um they are actually globally useful and usable which is you know and, and i think the 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 jargon they were using uh, not jargon but uh, it was it was comparable and um complete yeah interoperable and complete but the, the completeness is part of it as well the completeness of because there are huge gaps at the moment in what data is out there and if you're creating standards um to gather data that's the objective of the standards is that people will report data against them you you need to be make you know um, uh, you know apples and apples not apples and uh, apples and pears you know so that's that's important but i guess that's where as these things go through in that come through in the to the fore and, and we finally know the final detail of them i guess that's where firms could if they wanted to choose to use their influence and you know uh evidence of where they've put regimes in in the past and and that ability not to speak to one another and the need for it to be able to speak to one another um so it's usable yeah, exactly. And and so, Henry, I mean, the US, I, I, I'm about to be um, a bit glum about the US. The US has a fragmented regulatory approach before we even start on all of this. Are we going to see a seamless approach in the US? Or, I mean, we've had EU and UK, we are, are already playing with new rules. Fragmented timelines, fragmented approach. Where do we think the US is going to go with all of this? Well, as you say, I mean, the U.S. is certainly behind Europe and the U.K. Um, they are, however, part of all of these organizations. Um, they've been sitting at the table with their European counterparts to learn from them in terms of what they've done in, in, on regulation. Um, and I think, you know, when this fragmentation, while it is it, it is a huge issue, um, I think the regulators in the U.S. and here, I think specifically um, 
the SEC and the Federal Reserve and the OCC. Um, I think they, they, they're they aware and certainly would want to avoid the type of scenario that you're describing, right? Where um, you have green plating, gold plating in different regions, jurisdictions of the world. And then, you know, they recognize that that won't do anyone any good um, if it comes to, you know, global institutions that have a footprint, a footprint everywhere. And, and so creating more complexity on something that's been agreed and only perhaps needs some fine tuning, I, I think, you know, is, 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 a, is something I think the regulators here in the U.S. recognize that they would want to avoid um, whenever they get, you know, ready to unveil their own rules and disclosures. And, and regulations around this. And, and I, I'm somewhat encouraged as well, um, in particular, um, yesterday we had the announcement of the reappointment of uh, Jerome Powell as chair of the Fed and uh, Lael Brainard as vice chair. And um, Brainard has been perhaps the most outspoken among the banking regulators on climate risk, risk and, and social issues. And I think, you know, she having her in a vice chair role, she will undoubtedly have a, a, an important leadership uh, role in, in terms of future U.S. policies and, and rules around this. So, and, and she is, um, and she's been public about it. She's, she's acknowledged that the U.S. has been behind its European counterparts, and uh, so I would I would expect uh, with people like her at, at the table that they will try to coordinate their approach with other regulators and to avoid the kind of scenario that you suggest could happen. Excellent, excellent. Um, two sort of other key questions. I mean, one is around strategy. Um, and this is a huge question. To what extent are financial services firms truly going to have to remake their strategies? I mean, you can't just wave a magic wand and turn brown assets to green. That just doesn't work. So how do financial financial services firms even begin to start on this? I mean, it's like boiling the ocean. So what, with compliance officers' help, I suspect, very strongly suspect, what's their kind of first step on this? So... um. Transition plans, basically, um, you're going to have to have, tra- everyone's going to have to have transition plans. To be fair, you know, there are firms out there that already have transition fi- plans, but um, you keep hearing the words credible transition plans now. So credible, you know, they've got to be credible. And actually in the UK, it's going to be a legal requirement to have them. Uh, all listed firms and asset owners have to have them by 2023. So, um, and uh uh, Sasha Sudan, who is the FCA's director of ESG, he, he was formerly at uh, Legal in General. Um, he said uh, on a panel I was listening to at COP that uh, he doesn't want to hear people's 2050 plans for how, you know, for, for net zero in 2050. He wants to hear the 2030. He actually wants to hear the 2025 plan. And so, I mean, we're at the end of 2021. So that's, you know, that's really a lot of work that has to be done you know, now-ish. And he also he also said, um, you know, that 
remuneration has to be part of that. So, you know, you, your executive remuneration and everybody's remuneration has to be tied to into that 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 plan and how you're going to get there and, and, and stuff. And so so once the financial institution and those transition plans will look different, whether you're an asset manager, whether you're an insurer, whether you're a bank, obviously, but you're all going to have to have them. But, you know, that will hopefully, you know, set out for, you know, at which point you might be exiting, you know, coal, oil, uh, you know, et cetera, or, um, you know, or, or just even how you're going to engage with those uh, those assets on your balance sheet or those investee companies. It's just, I mean, you, you know, your, what's in your transition plan will be up to you, but those are the types of things that regulators are going to be looking for. You're going to actually have to have timelines against those discussions and those in investments or lending decisions. And it's going to have to, uh, you know, they are going to have to be verifiable from one year to 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 the next, and they will be checked. So, um, that's 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 certainly the plan. I just wanted to uh, highlight one other th thing in this space. So, um, the European Securities and Markets uh, Authority (ESMA) it's uh, a couple of weeks ago it uh, it can dictate to national regulators in the EU 27 what they look for in their in an annual sift that they do through all listed companies annual reports um, and that's under the um NFRD that's that it, it it does this this year it has chosen um that regulators specifically go and look for greenwashing and it spelt out what it meant by greenwashing in annual reports so that is where there is a claim upfront in the annual report about we're wonderful, we're sustainable, we're, you know, blah, 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 blah. And there's no metrics or there's no data or there's, you know, there's no map of how they are going to get to that in the back end of the report. They are, they are going to be targeting that this year. And obviously they can require restatements of annual reports and there are sanctions that they can take. So, um, I, I've strayed slightly off your, your, your question, Susanna, but it was just about, how firms are actually going to get there it's actually it's not a future thing it's a it's a now thing and best efforts and then you will have to get you know better as we go along but certainly in europe it's 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 landing and picking up actually on the sanctions point because that was going to be sort of my final question before we move into the takeaways um enforcement i mean one of the ways financial services firms are encouraged to behave is the threat of enforcement and sanctions. So, Henry, where are we on enforcement on this? Can we expect enforcement for bogus green claims, greenwashing? Um, the Department of Justice in the US is very hot on individual accountability for corporate fraud. Would this fall into that? I mean, what, do this, what does the stick look like? Let me ask that way. I think... The stick would most likely come from the SEC, um, perhaps in in cooperation or jointly with the Department of Justice, because as you say, uh, the Department of Justice has said that it's it's putting corporate financial crime at at a much higher level in terms of its its agenda and uh, priorities. So I, I I think greenwashing. Um, again, over here, we're a little bit behind, um, as you know, compared to our European friends and the UK, but it will, uh, 
rise in importance. And certainly the SEC has talked about this being an issue. Um, and I think once we get the proposed rules on disclosure from the SEC, which now looks as though it'll probably be early next year, um, then you can begin to perhaps think about, okay, what are the risks to an organization if they don't abide by these d disclosure rules and standards, right? And what are the penalties? And could it be fines? Could it be something more severe? Um, it's just, again, unfortunately too early to tell from, you know, the U.S. regulatory standpoint. But, um, you know, on the, on the banking side, I think, again, the Federal Reserve, <clears throat> NOCC, um, they will unveil how they're expecting banks to address these issues in probably the next year or so. And um, there we will also then have a better understanding what the, what the compliance aspect really is all about, right? What, what, what do I as an institution need to provide? Um, not, again, not to say you shouldn't be preparing already, but you know, once, once the U.S. comes out with those um, requirements, then, then you could see what the risks are from an enforcement standpoint. And I would hesitate ever to dictate what a uh, U.S. regulator would say and do, but I suspect they are going to be taking all of this really very seriously indeed, given the international focus on all of this. This, is, this isn't going to be some, you know, oh, well, yeah, if, if you can, it'd be quite nice. Um, gosh, we have gone through so much already. Um, time to move on to takeaways and and. Just from my perspective, I would suggest that, particularly for compliance functions, they need to get totally involved in this, but also they also need to begin the huge task of the documentation. Where are we now? Where are we going to? How are we going to get there? The transformation plans, are they credible? Good question. Do we have the resources? Do we have the skill sets? And plan it. Apart from anything else, you're going to have to talk to the regulator, whichever domestic regulator you're, you're, you know, of choice. What are you doing about it? Because it is a really obvious question in the wake of COP26 for regulators to ask. You know, COP26 has happened, ISB has happened. What are you doing about it? You're going to have to have a good answer to that. And that will require a lot of documentation and a lot of um, evidence gathering. So, Lindsay, from your perspective, takeaways for compliance officers. Um, so I to wholeheartedly agree that, you know, hopefully firms are not at the beginning of the journey of documentation you just described, Susanna. Hopefully they are. There is a gap analysis has been done, you know, and they are working on, you know, how they close those gaps, whether that's information they get from their clients, um, or, or whatever. Um, again, there is the the ISB standards. The prototypes are there. Look at them. See if what you're doing is actually consistent. The direction you're going is consistent with what those prototypes say, because you know that you know that's what's that's what's going to be the world in a year's time. Um, and engage. Actually, engage. There, are, there's you know there there are. Lots of um, opportunities to feed into, for example, the European reporting standards. The UK has an, a, has an equivalent. It has a transition task force that it's set up. These are all, you know, you know, 
op- ways for industry to engage to make the point. Not, not. I mean, I'm not saying to halt progress. That's not what I'm suggesting at, at all. But what I'm, I'm, I'm saying is, you know, you know, there's a cost of everybody going off at tangents. Um, a, you know, very big cost. Um, you know, to complexity. So make your case because these things are being set, are being negotiated and settled now so make your case thank you yes again i think that needs resources but uh move on um henry takeaways here's a simple one um to me the, the whole climate issue and your relationships with those who you're providing credit to it's sort of like a KYC, know your customer um, function, right? Except in this case, you look, you should be thinking about extending your KYC function to include climate risk, right? Which among your clients are more heavily exposed in terms of climate change, whether they fall in the polluting category or where they're, you know, geographically headquartered or positioned in regions where there's, you know, a higher risk of, you know, bad weather and so on and so forth. So take your existing KYC functions that you use in other areas, such as anti-money laundering, and just extend that to this new category and build upon, you know, the infrastructure that you already have uh, that supports uh, KYC in your organization. It's, it's, you have the data. There's a lot of information about your customers that you already had. And it's just a question of integrating that into, you know, your existing processes. That, that to me, would seem like sort of a natural step that compliance officers can do. Very wise words. Thank, thank you both so much. I thought that was a fascinating conversation. And thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Clarified. As ever, we hope you found it both interesting and useful. Now, into the episode notes, we'll drop the protocol links. We'll drop a couple of articles which go into that bit more detail on the issues we've been discussing. I'll also include a link to our new ESG report, together with a link for further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence itself. Last but not least, very much appreciated if you could take the time to review the podcast and do let us know any suggestions for future topics. Thank you for listening. Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.